Hello, uh, welcome to what isn't so much a debut episode as much as a, a relaunching revival of my uh, old, short-lived but well-received uh, podcast, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed Salah Talking. Well-received by all but one person, I'd say. Um, the person who gave me a death threat, uh, we'll get to uh, in this episode. But I wanted to begin by talking about uh, why, uh, you know, the podcast itself why I began it in the first place. Uh, back then, it was like the podcast that I've been doing recently, uh, Ahmed's uh, AA meetings with Ahmed and Abdi, Abdi and Ahmed. Uh, it was not my idea, it was my friend's idea. Abdi was one of the friends that actually I recommended it. At the time of my life back then, it was 2014, um, it's hard to describe. It was like, um, my, my, as I mentioned in uh, earlier podcasts on uh, episode three of AA meetings that... Uh, my father passed when I was uh, 19. It was pretty uh, devastating for me. And uh, 2014 was uh, five years after. But just because of the nature of his death, it was very visual, very traumatic. Um, it lingered with me. I was very depressed for most of the beginning of my adult life. And at the time, I was uh, studying evolutionary biology, mainly because I was. You know, my parents wanted me to go into the sciences and. Uh, I, that was the one that appealed to me the most. I just had no real direction in my life, nothing. So, 19 to 25, I had uh, taken maybe a, a one and a half year break from uh, my studies and uh, returned very slowly, taking the kind of course load that I could manage with, like the heavy depression and uh, also, to be honest, kind of drinking problem that I'd. Uh, developed at the time and uh so i was just approaching the end of that and i was beginning to resent science and the life that i was stuck in more and more right it was making me more depressed my studies uh doing something that i wasn't really engaged in though i was somewhat stimulated by and the prospect of doing it for the rest of my life uh was really depressing right uh at that time i began tweeting just because, you know, I didn't think my friends were, uh, giving my jokes uh, enough, uh, you know, uh, credit in the group chats, but, um, I began to get a bit of encouragement from strangers on Twitter, writers on Twitter, to, uh, consider, uh, writing, right, to consider comedy, and, uh, it, I had been encouraged to do that before, uh, like high school teachers and whatnot, uh, friends. I always kind of uh, use humor to interface with people. So kind of once I began thinking about it as a career after it was recommended, it was like, oh, that's kind of something I already did, something I could easily see myself doing. It's not easy, but I, I could, I could, yeah, I could. I found direction in life by working towards the potential of a career of, you know entertaining people right doing writing and comedy uh i was thinking about forms in which to do that uh and my friends recommended you know a podcast would be nice you know why don't you try that right so i initially what i began doing was i would record um me talking about any topic that i thought i could talk about at length just to see if i could get some samples of the podcast to see if it would be engaging listening and what happened was uh, my older brother uh, actually listened to some of them what happened was uh, the topic I chose 
just because it was on the top of my head at the, the, the time was uh, being finding out that I was bi, right, uh, bisexual, and uh, not a topic I discussed with my conservative Muslim family members. Uh, but when my older brother asked to use my laptop for some to send something, he discovered the the audio files snooping around and uh, class act that he is is what he decided to do was uh, uh, save the recordings, uh, copy them, give it, go through them all, study them like at one minute and thirty five seconds into this recording, Ahmed says this about you know blah blah blah. And just go throughout the entire family, uh, playing these recordings for them. Uh, these very intimate, yeah, recordings. I mean, I was going to consider putting them public, but still, it's like my choice to come out to my family members, and he kind of denied me of that. And uh, what happened was, uh, after maybe a week of him going around the house in secret, uh, it began, like, I heard from a sister. Uh, one very moral, my favorite one, <laughs> that uh, this is going on. My mom confronted me and said, we need to talk about it. No, we don't. And, uh, yeah, never let her just think whatever she wanted. I was not going to touch that in the 10-foot pole. I didn't know how to communicate it at the time, but uh, I also felt I didn't need it or an explanation. So what ended up happening was uh, he ended up uh, kind of doing me a favor uh, in that, like, my mom, she would uh, reject racism as a, a label for herself, but... Uh, she does have strong views on miscegenation, and uh, now that she's thinks of me marrying a man as a prospect, she's happy with any woman, no matter what race she's from. So, kind of brought in my options relative to all the other family members, that, uh, all the other kids. So, I guess it's okay. But what it meant for my podcast was it switched uh, it from a big idea to something. Yeah, I'm definitely fucking doing it, mostly as a fuck you to my brother, right? Like if you wanna listen to my, yeah, me talking, you don't need to snoop around my, uh, laptop, you know, you could just go on the internet and listen to it for free, and, uh, the podcast itself was, um, very, like, loose-formed, right, I had some episodes about, like, I think one episode was about, like, Robin Williams and his suicide at the time and, like, depression, there's one about, like, insecurity that results, you know, from, being single for a long stuff like that, and like uh, what ended up though uh, happening was that ISIS began taking over, right? And uh, radical Islamic terror was always always a topic that kind of interested me, just mainly because my my father uh, had multiple sit down conversations with me and my siblings when we were kids about the late nineties and early two thousands rise of uh, terrorism during uh, as it was happening, like during the nineteen ninety eight attack during the USS Cole attack <coughs> every time there's a major um, movement uh, by these folks the Ken uh, sorry the Kenyan embassy attack uh, every time there was a major attack by al-Qaeda my dad would explain to us that these people are purporting to be Muslim they're not kind of explain what their ideology was as best he could and just kind of shelter us from that right give us a heads up later on reading studies which i'll get into about radicalization find out that's probably the best thing that you could do to inoculate somebody against radical islam right as uh if you have a strong traditional upbringing in the religion even if you don't hold to that throughout your life like i did right i'm no longer religious because you know i just can justify the belief in a god not anything about islam but yeah it just having that traditional knowledge of the quran 
and uh, the Hadith and whatnot made it such that I wasn't able to be manipulated by these folks, right? And I was able to see what their manipulations and their distortion were because my dad, who was knowledgeable about the things that they, uh, about the like, things that the terrorists claim, right? Like the justifications for suicide bombing and all that kind of stuff, he was able to just cut through all that in a way I couldn't, right? But um, it put me in a position when like 9/11 happened, where I was the only one in the class who kind of knew uh, about about it, right? I was a, had a little bit more information uh, than um, than uh, the other people, and since that kind of put me in a position where people would ask me questions about it, I would want to not mislead people, so you read more about it, right? You don't want to say talk out of your ass, so you just kind of prime me into that being like yeah that's how i think my fascination with uh jihadism started so when um isis starts taking over the headlines and um, a lot of iraq and syria and i have a podcast i'm like oh this is perfect right i could uh, do a little series about this it'll be entertaining and like so i did a bit of uh, a breakdown about the history of uh, some of these radical groups like going back to uh you know the Kutubism of the Muslim Brotherhood in the 60s and how that uh, in Egypt and how that kind of played the international yeah the uh, intellectual underpinnings for like Osama bin Laden's like global radical jihad later on um, things like that how it kind of progressed to ISIS differences between ISIS and whatnot um, that's it was what was interesting to me was uh, like um, what sticks in my memory about it was that. Uh, People really liked it. Like uh, the people on the uh, the people who followed me on Twitter, because that's what I was just doing at the time. Um, they responded to it really well. Like one woman even told me that uh, she played it for her kids. She was uh, so interested in it. Uh, so, but then I got a phone call, um, which I didn't take seriously at all. It was just uh, one person saying, you know, we're gonna Ahmed Salah, we're gonna kill you and things like that uh stop what you're doing very vague i didn't pay much stock into it immediately so i'm just like it was i actually hung up the phone call thinking it was just a dumb prank uh but then a few seconds a minute after kind of you know the context came back to me oh yeah i just did release this uh podcast a series about a radical islam and um you know uh, the guy did pronounce my name ahmed salah in a way that you know none of my friends would be able to so i just started to get kind of weird out who is this who called me it was a block number so i, I called back my friends and my relatives some of my relatives asked them hey you know is this a joke did you just call me uh but as it got down like towards the list it started to get more and more panicked as I realized, no, this is not, like, a friendly call, and, uh, yeah, I, I told a friend as I was freaking out, like, I went directly to the cops, uh, re ju jumped into the arm of Big Brother, uh, which was very, because like, one of the cops there, uh, two cops who were interviewing me, and one of them thought I was crazy, totally thought, I kind of get it, like, one guy, comes in with like shorts and a t-shirt one day and just like frenetic kind of like kind of in a panic so you know i got a call from like a jail <laughs> like in north york toronto right there's no like terrorist targets there right like i have no public profile or right? it doesn't make any sense but thankfully the other uh minority cop i'm not going to say anything about the former cop that kind of dismissed me of uh 
but the other minority cup, uh, it took me seriously enough to like pass it on. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, and then a couple, <laughs> the first night I was like just a total mess, a total mess. I was, uh, my family was the second oldest of six. My room was like all the way in the top corner. So if someone were to come in and to want to kill me, they would have to pass like my mom, all my siblings, and then the last room that probably check was mine, right? And uh, so to minimize the chance that they will get killed as a result of my podcast, the first night what I did was I slept by the front door, just inside the front door with a brick. What was, what was I going to accomplish with that brick if like a al-qaeda task force came in <laughs> through the door i don't know but i felt like you know if i die at least you know i won't you know lead to the deaths of them unnecessarily too right uh that was the psychological context in which i was in and there was only one person who i thought it could be uh as i was narrowing down the list of people who followed me on twitter so they would know about the podcast and people who had my phone number, it was just kind of came down to one, two people, uh, one of whom was in Saudi Arabia studying the Quran at the time, right? Uh, I don't want to, you know, make his identity clear now because I don't think he's involved with that kind of stuff right a- anymore, but uh, not involved with learning the Quran, that's not nefarious, but I mean the radical stuff, right, uh, that I suspected, but it made the police aware immediately, like, hey, hey there's this person, uh, doing this, I think he's the person that might have done it. And, um, what ended up happening was that, like, even though I knew the police were on it, um, I didn't, and my friends were telling me, you know, calm down, relax, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, it's probably, uh, something that they were trying to do to scare you. That was the main line from the police, it was just like, they, probably just someone's tr- trying to mess with your head. Uh, but, yeah, what, <clears throat> and even though I knew that was the case, right, it didn't matter, uh, right, it was all I could think about all day, it was just daydreaming about different ways in which you could die, right, how easy it is for me to get murdered, right, at the time, I was thinking, yo, you don't even need a gun, you could just stand in your driveway, like, well, yeah, just dr- stand near my driveway and just, uh, with your car and, uh, wait for me to get out and, run me over right and like uh i this was before the uh uh vehicle attacks were prominent right and a couple weeks a couple days after i start to worry about this on the news there's like the first major vehicle attack on like uh in quebec where when uh, a few soldiers were run over so this is like totally fucked with my head i was more anxious than i think i've ever been uh and it went on for weeks, uh, one thing that did help, uh, the only thing that kind of channeled the anxiety into something kind of productive was reading radicalization studies. Uh, those kind of fascinated me and kind of figuring out how somebody I kind of grew up with, that's who I suspected, of course, uh, uh, could become, uh, yeah, go down this path, at least an extent. It was kind of shocking to me. And I, as I began to learn, uh, more about the process of radicalization more than i already had uh it chipped away at my anger the vague anger i had both towards the person i thought who gave me the threat and the radical terrorism itself right uh because what happens when um 
almost even a liberal, a lefty pinko like me ends up, uh, yeah, the fear kind of results in like a paranoia and like a defensive anger, like a generalized rage towards all the people. Like you end up like Dick Cheney. Uh, or Dick Cheney talks about like the one percent doctrine, where if there's like a a one percent chance of a terrorist attack happening, you have to treat it with a hundred percent, like hundred percent certainty. Uh, you know, after 9/11, he walked around with like uh, gas masks and had a, a Secret Service detail who had like extra weaponry, went from bunker to bunker. That kind of mentality um, was similar to the one that I was entering into. I think the difference between me and Dick Cheney, one of the many differences between me and Dick Cheney, is that because he was like a, he was already a defense secretary before he was vice president before 9-11, he'd already kind of justified the use of military force and uh, writing off the lives of tens of thousands of people, right? He could already thought of military action as justifiable as pursuing America's interests of the greater good or whatever. So it would be easy for him to just take the step, yeah, there's this hostile threat, this vague threat that's driving me crazy let's kill them all right I, th I didn't make that jump as much uh, I went to uh, yeah I had a more of a desire to understand it even though I wouldn't have uh, been you know saddened by the news of any jihadi's death at the time right uh, what I realized and, and this is one of the reasons I pay uh, so close uh, mentioned radicalization so much was uh, one, the process itself was shockingly relatable. Like, I didn't think I would ever have gone down it. But some of the basic feelings of alienation, uh, meaninglessness, were things I could have related to and had motivated me to pursue comedy and writing, right? So I was just like, oh, yeah, that feeling. Oh, I totally get it, right? Uh, I feel like I had a, a better excuse, right? I was, like, deeply traumatized, right, than, than these people did. But, no, I mean, they... They have a pretty valid one too, um, and uh, it was I kind of what it made me do is uh, removed uh, I, I guess some of the condemnations of their actions from uh, warping my perception of them as people, and that gradually helped me uh, return to being empathetic towards even them, right, and helped me to uh, understand them in a way that allowed me to contextualize the situation. Because if you just think about them as monsters, uh, vague, vague threats, then uh, there's no real solution. There's no way to stop thinking about it, right? It doesn't make the, uh, it doesn't do anything to under, uh, yeah, cut away at the anxiety, right? It just makes it more of a permanent problem. That helped in a way, uh, it diminished the anxiety a bit, it occupied my mind. Uh, the thing that helped the most was uh, one random day a couple of weeks into it when uh, I was on, I was going for a walk in a nearby park and uh, speaking to my friend who was trying to, almost daily conversations or just like checking up on me, trying to uh, yeah, keep my head on straight. Uh, and um, when our conversation ended, I was just sitting in the park bench a little while indulging in a marijuana joint probably not the best thing to do when you're as paranoid as I was <laughs> back then but uh, you know uh, you don't make the best decisions uh, at the time uh, I'm sitting there smoking my joint minding my own business and this gentleman uh, this uh, somewhat disturbed uh, looking right he looked kind of shaken up emotionally distraught I mean uh, guy came uh, he, mind, he said do you mind if I uh, sit there right? uh, sit beside you on the bench 
Uh, of course, I could not say no. Uh, I didn't want to say no. It would be a rude thing to do. Even though I was uncomfortable. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, sit down. He comes, starts cracking. He immediately cracks open a beer. I'm like, oh, great, now we cops come, I'm going to get ticketed with you. Right, but uh, whatever. Feeling uncomfortable, everyone who walks by is going to think like I'm a guy who just drinks in a public bench in a park, uh, right? Uh, make all the kids feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. But, you know, I just, I can't tr justify treating this guy poorly, so I just sit there, right? And he starts telling me about um, this problem that he's having, like, with his, his father. Uh, he had an altercation with his father over, like, a late payment by an, a couple hours of a piddling some money and the father kind of got physical with him and as the dad the son this is his telling of the story of course like when his son was defending himself from the dad kind of hurt the dad a bit right while they were scuffling not punched him but you know in the shoving match kind of bumped up against the wall says he was completely defensive but the father decided to call the cops and even though the cops urged him to not press charges uh, over, uh, again, the piddling amount of money on your own son, uh, he decided to go with it. And so the, the son was stressed out about his upcoming uh, court date. Um, and was, yeah, so, of course, I didn't know if the guy was telling me the truth. Didn't know, yeah, much about the situation. But natural reaction I think any most people would have is a person here is here. Stranger coming here asking you for advice, right? A little venting to you about an issue. You're going to try to give him the best advice I could. So I was like, just trying to figure out, like, like, yeah, asking, engaging him in conversation enough so I can, like, get as much inf relative information as I could. And, um, yeah, just trying to instruct him, you know, like, trying to tamp down some of his animosity for the, the court system, for example, just so that he's less likely to, um, seem hostile and like play into his dad's framing of stuff like that right just encouraging him to just be more calm and like things of this nature uh not really relevant for us but what happened at the end of the conversation was is uh began to leave um was i realized that it was the first time since the death threat that i had <clears throat> gone an extended period of time without thinking about it right it was the longest period of time uh, that I'd been awake, that I wasn't thinking about it, and it was just because I was thinking about him and his problems, it was these, the empathy, um, that I had for this guy doing, a relatively small amount of empathy, was still transportive, right, and, uh, because my problem was so immense, it seemed to be so immense, um, I kind of forgot about everybody else in the world, right, and it's natural, it happens, it happens with every, like, major stress, uh, uh, factor yeah a period of stress in anybody's lives if there's medical emergency right uh people who are about to get ventilated usually don't you know spare too much time to think about you know the emotions of other people around them right um so you, it's natural for high stress moments to make people less empathetic but what kind of clicked then was that this is the most important time to be empathetic because not only is it good uh to do right uh <laughs> general it does have an emotional benefit right it is the best de-stressor the ultimate de-stressor as i found because nothing else worked right you can meditate that shit away gonna go for walks so i was like the terrified guy going for a walk right uh nothing helped uh except that uh really though so i would 
use that as a kind of a lesson, right? Uh, kind of remind myself of that when the anxiety would begin to ramp up again. And, you know, at work last time, let me just find anybody who I could be empathetic to, right? Let me just find anybody I can be nice to just to escape this dread of anxiety uh, that I had. Um, I began to think about it months after because, as I said, this was five years after my dad's death. I was still very much in the throes of it. Uh, and I began after, not just as a result of this, but uh, to kind of work my way through a lot of the, the the issues that I had before, right? For example, like knowing that um, empathy had helped me kind of in, in the process in the death threat made it much more clear the impact that it had during my dad's death, right? So what happened then was um, the last day, the last three days, like he was in the hospital for two weeks. He got an infection. And uh, if you know anything about like these infections, they're really nasty, right? And uh, the edema, the swelling and all that's really bad. So uh, for him, it took three days to die from the infection. The last day, his eyes were swollen open. His tongue was hanging out of his mouth. Uh, my mom was hoping, like she was worried that uh, when he got better, his eyes wouldn't work. So um, she was, when I woke up from uh, the ICU waiting room and just went in to check on, uh, check on him in the morning, I just see her trembling, holding his eyes, insisting that somebody holds his eyes closed because she doesn't want him to go blind when he gets better, right? To be blind when he, when he gets better. So I knew it was like the last day, I was kind of preparing myself for it. And that was like, hey, go time. And I f kind of figure out, like I, I was trying to hang on long enough so that I could uh, help my mom during the conversation I knew would inevitably happen about the end of life decision. Because like my dad, uh, it would at that point it wouldn't be putting somebody on a plug or pulling a plug because you can put as many plugs, uh, hook the person up to as many machines as you want. They're gonna die anyways, right? It's an infection that's gonna kill them. They're just gonna rot. Uh, so the chest compressions that they would offer are uh, just a delay of a few minutes, and they're excruciatingly painful, right? Like they would be breaking your ribs. Uh, and this is like the only death, like my father and I, we've spoken about death sometimes and we have a bit of both of, had a bit of a morbid sense of humor but like in our discussions one thing that was apparent was that because he was a religious guy he wasn't afraid of death but there was one particular death he was afraid of and it was that uh being like unnecessarily resuscitated at the end and having the last minutes just be agony so just my goal that day was just to keep my sanity enough stay in that room not like vomit and cry and leave keep enough coherence and credibility to uh be allowed into the discussion when that came just so that i was there to make sure my mom didn't accidentally make a mistake right by you know possibly saying yeah do whatever it needs you need to do right insisting on the chest compressions being done again even though they would not have helped so this was like a 19 years old doing that for like the entire day sitting there pretty much um it was horrific, and I think about how I got through something like that but, uh, later on, um, and it became clear after the death threat and that uh, somewhat of an epiphany that it was the like the the fact that I was doing it to keep my mom from having to undergo it, right? The 
empathy and love for uh, my mom and even my dad at that point uh, was what gave me, yeah, it was what I drove the strength to stay in the hospital bed that entire day was, right? So not only did it help in, 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 in moments that induce personal anxiety, helps during like incredibly traumatic events, helps with everyday stress, right? So I began to think about empathy as, uh, yeah, just like almost a cure, a panacea, right? an emotional panacea. Not, it definitely isn't, but yeah, it just, it is a excellent way of removing yourself from, temporarily removing yourself from uh, uh, negative emotions, negative thoughts. Much more effective, I think, than uh, meditation, which is inherently like, uh, yeah, inward looking, right? It's harder to do. Empathy is very easy because uh, so long as you have one person with you, it's unless they're the most revolting person in the world, it's very easy to focus on them instead of yourself, right? It's hard, much harder to enforce that uh, mental hygiene, uh, right? Uh, I'm not going to think about this no matter what, especially when that thing is your imminent demise. It's impossible to meditate that away. But empathy fits right in. So I began to think about it, though, as uh, because it's... Um, a self-centered way of approaching empathy, right? Of course, uh, I don't do it for self-centered reasons. I just nat naturally help or naturally default to the empath empathetic position. Uh, and I figured afterwards that it uh, it helps. But I, it, got, it got me thinking, like, what if somebody was, like, kind of incapable of empathy but then realized learned about its like beneficial uh yeah potential benefits stress relieving benefits attempted to uh, become empathetic just for that what would the outcome be right what if they developed like a a benign douchebaggery where they yeah just want to use empathy connect with people simply for themselves and uh that train of thought actually led to the book uh my book man's best friend there's a a chapter uh, called Man's Best Friend, in which, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, a chapter called Benign Douchebaggery, which is uh, pretty much my worldview, uh, stumbled upon by uh, a sociopath who kind of drove himself crazy uh, going through it, and uh, and uh, in that process, in that extended nervous breakdown, developed romantic feelings for a dog, right? Um, thing that I did have in common with them is like not the desire to have sex with dogs, uh, which he never does in the book. Uh, but one thing he did have in common is that tendency to, uh, yeah, use empathy to serve ourselves in emotional moments. So uh, that's one major benefit. Uh, I guess two major benefits of uh, the death threat having occurred is that uh, I, yeah, I developed that benign douchebaggery. I became a much more resilient, kind person. Uh, it kind of started uh, a series of uh, yeah, a train of thought that really led to the pursuance of more, you know, self self care for lack of a better term. You know, the processing of past. Uh, traumas, right? Like, uh, there's this great Dante line, um, 
don't want to like pull it up right now so i'll just like try to butcher it off the top of my head <laughs> try not to butcher it but it's um in the first canto like in the divine comedies it like finds himself uh in a in a forest you might uh might be familiar with this it comes to a forest tries to leave right vague like just uh, vague vaguely like following the uh a bit of light that he sees trying to find an exit of the, out of the woods uh eventually walks out uh and um sees the sign behind a mountain and just is so enthusiastic that he runs towards it right and he just feels as if his journey which has just begun is immediately over and when he's and well yeah when he gets to the there's a line that when a mountain's yeah as when he got to the mountain it's like looking back looking back the process of yeah looking back at these horrible memories was uh dante described as like uh as a man with difficult short breath for spent with toiling having escaped from sea to shore turns to the perilous wide waste and stands at gaze even so my spirit that yet failed struggling with terror turned to view the straits which not had passed and lived right it was a almost like a description of prolonged exposure therapy uh which i didn't know at the time was what this death threat kind of led to me yeah it led me down the road of uh, beginning to do right um um and it had led to me becoming a much happier person right uh, so, um, can't say thank you to the person who gave me a death threat, but I'm kind of glad that it happened, right? Um, yeah, now if I ever become famous, you know, I'll be better able to process the ones that I have coming up on the unlikely event that that happens. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's the death threat. That's the first story. I think it might be, uh, I, I, since I did mention, um, the process of figuring out that I was by uh, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that in a later episode um, but I'm not exactly sure what the I think this one's gonna take a more uh, the same loose form that the old podcast did where it's more of an outlet for me to talk about things like this right um, and I uh, one huge benefit is that it kind of reduces the tension I guess between me and my buddy Abti about uh, about uh, generated by a new podcast because I like this form a lot. I enjoy doing it, and uh, I as soon as we started the podcast, I just wanted to do. I noticed I wanted to record a lot more than he does, even though it was his idea. Just like, um, like okay, we record another one today. Um, okay, how when's the next time you're available for one? I want to do. Well, I was thinking about this. Let's record something about that. So I just kind of to reduce that uh, kind of tension between me and him uh and not make him you know, an argument of wanting to uh drop out of the podcast altogether i feel like it's a good time to bring the solo one um it's all talking back um yeah so i hope you like it um i'm definitely going to keep on doing more whether or not you do uh, but i hope you do like <laughs> it yeah take care bye